0: I'm just emotional Because I know That that's not just an applause But that's your heart You know And I know that that's just not Applause and enthusiasm It's your affection for me And um, I have actually a better voice Than this uh, But man I, I love this place I I weep for this place, I weep for Jacksonville, and I long to come back, and here I am, and I I can't believe I get to be here. I can't believe I get invited here to this great movement that God is doing amongst you. You know, um, I go all over the world, and I get asked this question all the time. The question is, how did you and Joby become friends? (laughs) I mean, really, how did you become friends? And I, I think the question is not because he's a redneck and I'm like a chink, that's not why. That's not why, I think because he is one of the, the most, I know he gives flattery, he gives words, he speaks so highly of people, he's high honor guy, but you know, he is the one of, and you know this too, the one of the most gifted dudes on the planet. You know that, right? You know that, right? And, and you get to call him your pastor, right? Right. That around him comes this amazing staff around him, amazing elders and amazing people. And God is doing something amazing in you. And for me to step on here and say, why do I feel so much grace from you? I cannot understand except the fact that I know that the grace of the gospel exists and it exists in you. And that's why I just come. Not wanting to present myself or to uh, present or impress you. Because you're my family, I could just walk in here and I could just be myself. I feel the freedom of that. In fact, I think there are only two churches in this entire planet that would maybe, maybe prefer me over Francis Chan. And my church is on the fence about that still, all right? So I am so glad to be here. I am just blown away that I get to. Um, and I come at a very tender moment in my life. I actually come as a really broken person. This week has been really, really hard. You see, on Friday, I, I came um, um, knowing that one of my staff member's younger brother in our church committed suicide. And that just broke my heart. And I was speaking at Exponential in D.C., and at 3 a.m., which is midnight in our time, I got the phone call to say one of my dearest brothers, he's only 26 years old, uh, he stopped breathing and he also died in our church. And so I'm going to have to fly back on Friday. I wish I could stay here all the way till Sunday, but I'm going to have to fly back to do two memorial services. And I miss home right now because when I'm aching, I want to be near family. Um, and knowing that my family is so heartbroken, I want to be there for them as their pastor. And the only peace and just really a, a calm and the grace I receive is knowing that I'm part of your family and I could just be myself and I could just bring my brokenness to you and to know to know deep inside my heart that you would actually receive it. And so... Um, So I I just want to just bring part of my brokenness to you, and um, thank you so much for inviting me here. I feel incredibly graced. I love Saturated. I want to be here every single year because I love revivals. And revival, the idea of a revival is this, that we find intimacy with God, and I don't know where you are in your walk with God. I don't know where you are in your spirit and your connectiveness with God. But revivals are powerful enough to make great wakes and great movements. And it always starts with one person. And maybe perhaps that person is in this room. And that God is going to do something amazing. And and that amazement is just a simple step to surrender something. And you're going to, at the end of tonight, I'm going to call you to surrender something in your life. I, I really am. And I pray that the Holy Spirit will move you to do it. But revival is essentially this, that you find intimacy with God, that you don't see God as this God of the cosmos that is really distant and far away, but you see him as your daddy. And you feel the nearness of him. Is he coming near to you? And maybe perhaps there's some of you in this room that feel like I'm really far from him, but you could say this about yourself. I want to draw near to him. If you could say that, just like Pastor Joby said, That is God talking to you. You're actually more closer than you think you are because he's talking to you. Who do you think gave you that idea? (laughs) The Lord, he wants you and you're hearing his voice. And what I want to talk about today is something that I actually wrote on Friday because I had something planned, but I, as I was praying, just felt led to talk about this subject and the subject is suffering. And the reason why I want to talk about it is sometimes in the wake of a revival, something that quenches the thirst of a revival is our hardship and suffering and trials. Maybe perhaps you're going through some of that too. And it's going to be a resistance to you. And you're not going to want to surrender to God. But I want to talk about it. I want to flesh something out in you and through you and through Scripture so that, uh, that we could continue to stoke that fire that God has given in us. I became a Christian when I was 22, in my senior year in college, right before I graduated. My parents weren't Christian. i never heard the gospel before. One of my earliest friends was this guy named Ken, and he already had a family. I went to this church, and he was a young guy with a young wife and two young kids, four-year-old and a two-year-old. And when I met him, I I heard the announcement that his four-year-old had leukemia, and his two-year-old had brain cancer, And they're both in two different wings of the hospital. Mom there, dad there swapping. It was a mess. One day I heard that the four-year-old was really struggling. So a group of our friends from church went to the waiting room. And we decided to pray. And after about a few hours, Ken came back with the news that his son had passed, four years old. And the first words out of his mouth were, the Lord is good. And let us in a song of it is well. Now that sounds glorious, but as a new Christian, I was super confused. I was like, what in the flipping world are you doing? You are singing and your son is dead. Are you kidding me? And I just couldn't understand. But taking a step back, I realized that Ken had a secret portal. A connection to God that was completely apart from his circumstances and you see you and I oftentimes and most Christians when we say God is good we're essentially saying this life is good right now our work is good our family is good I have money in my pocket and things are generally good and when things are not so good we struggle yeah we could do the whole chant you know God is good amen all the time all that stuff but in the heart of hearts Do we truly see God as good? And you know, Ken had something in his heart. And the question is tonight, how do we have that access with God? The same kind of access that Ken had that's impervious to circumstances. How do we get that? And I want to direct you to a passage that's been really, really uh, ministering to me in the last few days. And that's found in the book of Job. So if you have your Bibles, would you just turn there to the book of Job? And we're going to be in the first chapter Job chapter 1 we'll start reading from verse 8 um, you know in fact could I just ask you to stand in honor of reading God's word could I ask you to do that um, and John Piper once said this he goes, if you haven't heard from God in a while all you have to do is read the Bible out loud alright So we're going to do that. Uh, Let me read it for you and you can follow along. This is the word of the Lord, verse 8. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the sabians fell upon them and took them and struck them down Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And that is the word of the Lord, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Please be seated. The question tonight that we're asking is, how can I maintain my intimacy with God in the midst of my trials, hardship, and tribulation? And this text, I believe, teaches us two things that we must know and three things that we must do. Two things we must know and three things that we must do. So let's hit it first. What we have to know. Here's the first thing that you must know. Know that God, your God, has not lost control. He has not lost control. Look, the book of Job starts out with this amazing dialogue between God and Satan. Man, you want to be a fly on the wall in a dialogue between God and Satan? Well, here it is. They're talking. Verse 8. Have you considered, my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? And Satan says, oh, you think he's that great? You think that he's so awesome, huh? What happens if you take all the stuff away from him? Listen, God, he's in it not for you, but he's in it for what you give him. So take away those things and he's gonna ditch you is what he says. And so God says, listen, you could do some of this stuff, I'm in control, but here are the boundaries. You can't extend your hand. And he gives him these boundaries, and yet let Satan impact Job. Now, this passage teaches us something very deep. What Christian philosophers would call an asymmetrical relationship between God and evil. Now, this is very interesting. Interesting. Okay, this is the idea that God does not generate evil or suffering. Satan does. The world does because it's fallen. Though God never creates that suffering, he still allows it. He allows it, which means there is no suffering that you and I are enduring today that has not passed through his hand. How comforting. He knows these suffering. He allows it. That there are no two equal forces of God, good, and Satan, evil. And they're not clashing and they're fighting. That's not the picture. Because God is stronger. He is sovereign, even over Satan. So God gives him the permission to mess with Job. Listen, Tim Keller wrote a book on suffering. And he says this, quote, This conveys vividly the asymmetrical relationship between God to evil. There's profound philosophy here. In the book of Job, we do not have a dualistic view of the world in which there are two equal and opposite forces of good and evil. In that view, life is truly a battlefield and a crapshoot because there's no single force in charge. History is just a struggle between equally balanced forces of good and evil. There's no no being powerful enough to carry out a coherent plan for history. The Bible shows us no such world. God is completely in charge. He has total control over Satan. Satan can go so far and no further. God is clearly sovereign. Amen? Amen. Now, God gives permission to Satan to harm Job, but yet he limits and he says, you can do this, you can't do that. You can do this, but no, don't touch him there. Now, why does God allow Satan to do this? That's the question. And I think here's the answer. That God only allows Satan to accomplish the very opposite of what Satan, in fact, wants to accomplish. I'll say that again. That God only allows Satan to accomplish exactly the opposite of what Satan truly wants to accomplish. That God gives Satan enough rope to just literally hang himself is what God is doing. You see, what is Job, I mean, Satan wanting to do with Job? He wants to cause Job to be actually a fraud. See, he's a fake. He just wants the things from you, God. But what ends up happening to Job? The very opposite plan of what actually Satan wants. Yeah, he wants Job to be identified as a fraud. But there's a reason why here, thousands of people in Jacksonville is studying Job's life. You see? He's been an inspiration and a model. Not only that, a direction and a portal to Jesus and our Lord. And many people have transform lives because of this book of job you see and that was not Satan's plans That was not in his books. That means God is in control of every area of your life. He has not lost control. He does not fight equally with Satan, evil versus good. No, God is absolutely sovereign. Every drop of evil that Satan unleashes, God unleashes an oceanic sovereign power that would wash over that little drop as powerful and as vast as the open seas. That is the power of God and I want to ask you, do you believe that tonight? Do you believe that tonight? God is in control. He has not lost control. Here's the second thing that you must know. That it's okay not to know. That it's okay not to know. Do you realize that Job never gets an explanation from God for his suffering? You know, Job has absolutely no idea. God doesn't say, hey, listen now, Job. Listen, you're going to suffer for a while. But you know, I'm writing this book. And it's about like 40-some chapters, you know? I'm gonna re- and at the end, I'm going to restore everything. By the way, this book is going to be read, you know, for generations and generations and generations to come. And there's going to be a church in Jacksonville that's just going to blow up. It's going to create a huge weight. They're going to hear one day about you. No, that's not what God says. He never tells them. You know why? Because even if God were to tell Job and explain to Job all the reasons why he's doing it, Job would not understand. Do you realize that? Listen, just like a couple months ago, my four-year-old, I have a four-year-old daughter. She is like, I have three kids. My four-year-old daughter, she's the prize of our family. She is like the only normal one and you know she you know every time she cries daddy comes you know and I I saw her crying I came I'm like what's going on and she's arguing with my 12 year old boy and she's like this is our house this is our house and Caden's like my son is like no it's not no it's not it's like this is our house. daddy Caden says this house is Chase's house and I'm like Chase McVean, our student ministries pastor? I'm like, no, baby, this is our house. It's not Chase's house. And he's like, Dad, it technically is, uh, because we pay mortgage to Chase, and Chase Bank owns this house, and we have a a loan for 30 years at 3.25%, and if we default on the loan, then the bank takes it. So technically, that is Chase Mortgage's house. And I'm like, okay, so he's a nerdy 12 year old, but still, right? I'm like, son, like, you cannot tell this stuff to a four year old. He's like, I use simple words like borrow. (laughs) Now imagine telling a finite being infinite things. Listen, Job 38, God says to Job, who is this, that dark? darkens counsel by words without knowledge who speaks without knowing nothing he says where were you when i laid the foundation of the earth that's a great question where were you by the way (laughs) tell me if you have that kind of knowledge and understanding you see job asked the question why are these things happening to me and god says listen job were you there when i created the foundation of the earth were you there when i made dolphin brains were you there were you there when I made the expanse of the sea, were you there? When, the, when I caused the sun to rise, were you there? This is what he's saying to us, that there is a cognitive difference between you and an ant, and that difference is nothing in comparison to our cognitive difference between us and God. And for us to think, God, why is this happening to me? And for him to open his mouth and tell us, and for us to think that we'll get it, It's arrogant! It's arrogant, and for many of you, many of you, and I've said this before, we're like, oh, this is the reason why God did this. Listen, because he's infinite, that might be just one of the billions of reasons why he did it, and we'll never understand. We'll never understand. But listen, this is even more important as to why we should be okay not to know. You know why? Because when we're faithful through our suffering, it proves that we love God, not for what we get, but we love God just for him. That's what it means. Now, this is huge, right? Verse 8, God says, Job is my servant, and he fears me. You see, in the Old Testament, the word fear is an inward awe and wonder. It's worshipful. So what God is saying here is, Job serves me, and he loves me. Then listen, what does Satan say? Satan says, no, he doesn't. He doesn't love you just because he loves you for all the things that you give him. And if you actually take back all the stuff that you've given him, you blessed him with land, you blessed him with cattle, you blessed him with a family. If you take those things from you, you know what? He's going to be out. He's gone. Right? Now, props to Satan. He knows where our goat's tied, right? He knows. He knows because you know what? He goes straight to one of the biggest problems in the whole entire human race, which is we love people simply not because of who they are, but what they could provide us. It's true. We like popular people because of the esteem that they give us. We like rich people because we could get their status. We we will even hang out with jerks just so that we could network better with them. Right? We'll do that, right? We want that. Okay, real talk. Okay, parents? Real talk. Tonight... As you leave this place, ask your 16-year-old kid this question. Hey, let me give you two options here. One option is that I'll buy you any car you want. Any car you want. Yeah, the student ministries are here. Any car that you want tonight. But I have to go away for a year. Or I don't buy you anything, but I stay. Now... (laughs) Okay, come on, parents. What do you think your parent and kid's going to choose? Really? You're like, not my kid. I know not your kid, but your neighbor's kid. What are what going to choose, right? They're like, mom, it's only a year. <laughs> I'm going to college in two years anyway, right? Satan knows. Satan knows how human beings are. We love people. We say we love them, but we often use people. So when Satan looks at people who say, oh, I love you, God, I love you, God, and they worship God, he whispers this. Do you really love God for God? Or do you really love God for all that he gives you? This is a very profound question that we need to ask. And the question is this. Do you love God just for God himself? Or do you love God because of all the things that he provides you? And listen, if you want to prove Satan wrong, if you want to actually be grounded in the confidence that you love God for him and not the stuff that he gives you, then you must worship him and serve him and be present for him and not expect anything back. And the only way we could do that in this world is when we worship and serve him through suffering. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to go through your suffering? Just saying, I love you, God. That's it. I don't expect anything back. And this is the only way you and I could be like Job. It's the only way that we could be fashioned into beings and men and women who would display such marvelous and glorious character. It is only through suffering. Suffering will fashion you into something that cannot fashion you without. And you'll become greater. You'll become stronger. And you could prove to yourself deep inside that you actually love God for God and not because he gives you stuff. And that's marvelous. Listen, some people say, man, I could just handle suffering if God would just tell me why. If he could just tell me why, you know, and maybe five years, 10 years down the line, he could just say, well, I'm going to do these things. Listen, you're still bartering with God. You're still bartering with God. You're not just loving him for who he is. You're loving him for what you can still get. It's the same thing. And for us to clearly say tonight, Jesus, we just love you for you, period. It requires you and I to continue to serve and love and worship him through suffering. Those are the two things that we must know. But here are the three things that we must do. Number one, cry if you want to. Cry if you want to. Verse 20. Then Job arose and tore his robe. And shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked I come from my mother's womb. And naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin. Do you see the real emotions here? Job Tore his robe. He put on sackcloth. He shaved his head. You know what the problem is in the Western Christian culture? We think emotions is a sign of weakness. We tend to think that. You know, I was at a memorial service a while back, and a pastor had passed away. And his family was absolutely grieving. In the middle of the service, they're wailing and crying. And the dude right next to me to the left, leans over to me and whispers, he's like, they're acting as if they don't know where the pastor is. Don't they know that he's at a better place? (laughs) You know, two years ago, you did a promo on the video. It wasn't a rap. It was about Taekwondo. (laughs) And it was how I invented it. Yeah, and you know what? I was going to display that in full force, right to his throat. (laughs) Right then and there. I was kind of like... I was gonna display all the things that I knew about Taekwondo, which I don't know a single thing, but you know what? I was just gonna punch him. I was so upset at that because Job did not sin. He wept, he cried, he shaved his head. Listen, Christianity is not about stoicism, it's not about stiff upper lip. It's not about pretending to be strong. It's about authenticity. It's about who you are. It's about you being received in spite of you. It's about you being real. And you know what? In the Christian doctrine, there's room for real, true emotion. It's true. You could weep because it says, in all this, Job did not sin. The second thing that you must do Cry if you want to. Secondly, tell God that it's all his. It's all his. You see, Job knew everything that he had was from the Lord. Look at what Job doesn't say. He doesn't say, God, you took it from me. You took my family. You took my land. You took my cattle. I worked so hard for it. It was mine. Mine. Why would you take that away from me? No, instead he says in verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he says, I've come naked, and I'm going to go naked. Everything was on loan by God, and God gave them to me, and it's all grace. So I totally stole this illustration from your pastor Joby, because once I was at a conference, I heard him speak and he used this illustration. I noted it down and I just like, this is so good. So, your neighbor needs a chainsaw. And you have a brand new one. You're like, oh man, I have a brand new chainsaw. I haven't broken it. He's like, hey, could I borrow your chainsaw? You know those neighbors. You're like, all right. Here, I'm going to be gracious to you. He's like, thanks, I need it. He uses it. A week goes by, two weeks go by, a month goes by. And all of a sudden, your trees are growing, and you need the chainsaw. You're like, hey, neighbor, could I get that chainsaw back? And he's like, why would you ask me that? Why would you do that to me? Why would you ask for your chainsaw back? Don't you know that I need it? Now, that's crazy, right? And the only way we could ever do that to God is if we assume all that we have is ours. The only time. Why would you take this away from me, God? Why would you take these things away from me? Why, 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 why? Listen. Now, I'll tell you why this is so important when we're going through suffering. If you build your identity on your earthly things... Like your money, like your possession, like your reputation, like your achievement, you know? If your happiness is built on just things, you know what suffering will do? Suffering will literally rip that away from you each and every time. It will gut your happiness away from your life. Because suffering is essentially when something earthly you deem important is being literally stripped away from you. But if you build your life on the eternal thing, It cannot be ripped away like God's love. It cannot be torn away from you like God's assurance. It cannot be torn away from you, God's affection. You can't take that away. The world cannot touch that. So we're having a huge party. Our church is six years old. And every year we throw this big party with moon bouncers and everything. And I saw my kid sitting on the sidewalk just grinding on a hot dog. Yeah, quans do that. All right, but he was just grinding on a hot dog when we had this great party. And so I'm like, man, he's not in the moon bouncer. I'm going to just go sit next to him. And so I sit next to him. He's grinding on a hot dog. Like, what are you doing, son? Grinding on a hot dog. All right, cool. And I'm just sitting there. And he goes, Dad, could I ask you a question? I'm like, sure, you know. What is the greatest temptation to man? You know what, pro tip, if you don't know the answer, ask the question back. What do you think the greatest (laughs) temptation a man is? Pro tip. And he goes, um, I think it's money, power, and fame. I'm like, really? (laughs) Correct. (laughs) But do explain. He goes, Dad, but check this out. Because I'm a Christian, I'm not tempted by those things at all. Like, what are you talking about? We're always tempted. No, you see, people have money. The richest people have lots of money. But I am the son of God, and I have the heirs to the kingdom. I was like, dang, boy. (laughs) Then he's like, Dad, and I have this incredible power. People think they have power, but they don't have the power of eternal life. They're going to die. I'm going to live forever. I'm like, All right. And he goes, dad, and people think being LeBron James, King James' son is awesome. I am the son of the king of all kings. Right? I'm like, preach it. I'm like, son, when did I teach you that? He's like, you didn't. (laughs) I'm like, where'd you learn that from? From Sunday school. I was like, wow, that's amazing. You see? A 12-year-old kid knows a treasure in this world that cannot be ripped away from this world. You see, not money, not power, not fame. He has something in the gospel that is far greater than that, untouchable in this world. Do you have it? And do you want it? Do you see that as a greater treasure, you see? The guy, the 26-year-old that just passed away on Monday, he had leukemia. And when he first went into the hospital, he was doing so well. When he first went into the hospital, I came because he had just had a bone marrow transplant. I just came and visited him. He looked messed up. He looked like he was a fitness trainer, you know. He looked like Joby swelled up. Like, you know you know what I mean? It's just like ridiculous, And now he was just a little frail little kid. And I came up to him, I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he looks at me from his bed and he says, why? Leukemia gives me more of God. He says, leukemia presses me into God. And this world cannot take that away and it's better than anything in this world. And he passed away Monday. Experiencing the treasure that he's been longing for for the, all his life and now he sees Jesus face to face. And you can only say that when you see the gospel as your greatest treasure. It's the only way that you could say that, you see. This ultimate treasure that is greater than all that you have in this world. If you build your identity on things, it's gonna be ripped away. You're gonna be sadder and sadder and matter and matter. But if you put your hope and your treasure in the gospel, then you're gonna absolutely through suffering be driven into the gospel. You'll have more of Jesus. And tonight, I'll be asking you to actually release. I'll be asking myself to be free from things that we clench onto. Because God says, let go of them. Because I want to give you more of myself. That's what he says. Here's the third thing. We'll close with this. Here's the last thing that you must tell. I mean, you must do. Tell Satan that he's a liar. Tell Satan that he's a liar. Remember when Satan comes to God and says, Job doesn't really love you. He's just using you. Do you know that that line has been used before? Yeah, in the Garden of Eden. It's the same lie that Satan tells over and over again. See, in the Garden of Eden, they were happy. Adam and Eve, they're in this perfect, blissful place in the presence of God. And it was awesome. And yet Satan comes, enters in, and he says, God doesn't love you. He's shortchanging you. He won't let you eat from that tree. If you eat from that tree, you will become a god yourself. Your eyes will open up. You'll see things that you can't see right now. And the only reason why he's limiting you is because he doesn't love you. And that lie has been ingrained in Adam and Eve and ingrained in us ever since. Here's the way I know. Because when you and I go through suffering, okay, every time we always, always go towards Always not only doubting God, but thinking the worst of God. That's why we ask the question, why? If you ever ask the question, why? You see, you're always immediately thinking the worst of God. And so these times, when you do not believe that God loves you, what are we to do? What are we to do? Because he does. And you're like, wait, Ryan, you don't know, though, what I've done. I've, loved, I, I've lived a terrible life. You know, I'm actually living in sin right now. At Resonate Church, we say it's easy to tell the 90%, but we tend to keep the 10%. And it's the 10% stuff that we keep in the dark. And it's the 10% stuff that seem, makes us seem like we're unbubbable. Because it's these things that we keep. And we can't let go. we say, you know what? God doesn't love me because God sees us through and through. He sees all things. And he sees this. He can't love me. Could I just share with you one more verse? That's an immense, immense encouragement to me. It's found in the book of Hebrews chapter 2, verses one and 11 to 12. It's a marvelous, marvelous imagery. It says, for he... Talking about Jesus Christ. Who sanctifies. And those who are sanctified. Talking about Christians who have been forgiven. Who is growing. All have one source. It is only through Jesus. And that is why. He is not ashamed. To call them brothers or sisters. Saying I will tell of your name. To my brothers. In the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Now do you see. What an appalling image this is. Jesus says that he sings about you in church. Do you see what he's doing? He's not ashamed of you. You're ashamed of yourself. He's not ashamed of you. He sings about you. He walks through the hallways singing your name. Singing the very fact that you are his brother and his sister. You see, we have a very, we have a challenge, a difficult time understanding this because we are from the Western culture. But if you are from another culture, you might, especially in particular the Eastern culture, you might understand this passage better. Because We Americans tend to think very individualistically, and we have that cultural mindset of individualism. So because we live in an individualistic culture, when we think about promoting ourselves, you know how we do it? We write it down. We only think of things that we've accomplished in our lives, and it's called a resume. Do you realize in your resume, you never write about your auntie and your uncles or your mother or father? You only write your accomplishments, right? Right? And so you're like, I did this, I graduated here, I accomplished this, I worked here, such and such years. And basically your resume is a list of all you've accomplished individually. Okay, now this is fascinating because if you go to other cultures, that never happens, you see, because... Because as I grow up, as I'm getting older, I'm 45 years old, I'm getting older, my eyesight's going, here's another revelation that I'm getting, that, you know, the byproduct of who I am today is not necessarily just the individual choices that I make, but the family that I come from. Much of who I am today is a byproduct of the family that I was rooted in. Like it or not, (laughs) a lot of who I am is because of my mom and dad. And their mom and dad, I'm realizing that. And this is the Eastern philosophy. This is their understanding, their cultural understanding that you are not an individual, you are family. That is why in the Roman times, if you wanted to promote yourself, you didn't give somebody your individual resume. You know what you gave instead? Your genealogy. Your family name. Okay? So you write your genealogy. I am the son of this person. Who was the son of this person? The son of this person, right? Right? And so you would all write down all the noble people that you had in your family. And you're like, oh, I have that crazy Uncle Larry who drinks too much. I'm going to leave him out. Just leave him out. <laughs> you know, my aunt who got married one too many times, I'm going to leave her out too. And all the aristocrats and all the nobles, you write them down. And you say, see, look at my lineage. See? And they would say, wow, you come from good stock. That was your resume. Now, when... The New Testament actually wrote Jesus' resume when he was being promoted to the world in Matthew 1. There was this long genealogy. And this is just incredible. Because in the book of Matthew... A book written at a time where Jesus was being recommended to the world. The very first chapter has Jesus' genealogy for people to see publicly his resume. And look who's there. First of all, there are five women that are written there. And do you realize that that's scandalous back then? Because the Roman civilization did not honor women. Women could not even testify in court because they had such a low status. But in Jesus' genealogy, women are there, but not normal women. Look, Bathsheba, the adulteress. Tamar, the incestuous prostitute. right, Rahab, the prostitute. Mary, the unwed single mother. You see, by moral standards, these people should not should not be in Jesus' genealogy. It's people to absolutely be ashamed of. But Jesus proudly includes them in his genealogy. And in the place of shame, he gives them honor. This king of the universe gives them honor. And do you know what this means? Let me close this way. This means that tonight, Jesus is not ashamed of you. That tonight, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you are doing currently, you could walk away from this space having absolute assurance, 100% that you are written in his book. Because your salvation never comes based on what you have done. But because of Jesus Christ, Christianity is the only religion where your salvation and all of your blessings come based on somebody else's life, not yours. And it's through Jesus. And through the death on the cross... He has received you. And because he has received you, you are his brother and his sister and he sings of you. He loves you. You never, ever, ever have to wonder if he loves you. You never, ever, ever, ever have to wonder if he's punishing you for something. See, we tend to think of worst of Jesus. We tend to think worst of God. Something bad happens to us. We lose our job. We have a broken relationship. You know, the, the, and we tend to think, God, why am I going through this? Because did I do something wrong? Or maybe you're punishing me because I did this and that and I'm still in sin right now. Maybe. And you never, tonight, you could walk out of this place with the 100% full assurance that your sin, your continued sin, and your future sins has been paid for forever. That on the cross, he says, it is finished. And that meant all the judgment that was coming on you has been diverted to Jesus. And he took the cup of wrath and he drank to the bottom of all the way to the dregs, flipped the cup upside down and slammed it on the ground and said, it is finished. It is finished. No more judgment for you. You are Jesus' brother and sister whom he loves. And he loves you to the heights. He loves you to the heights. So much later, much later in history after Job, Comes this innocent sufferer. His name is Jesus. Yeah, Job was moderately innocent. Jesus was completely innocent. And Job, he asked, Where are you, God? And he got no answer. Jesus also asked, Where are you, God? Why have you forsaken me? And he got no answer. In fact, Jesus is the only person ever in history who didn't get what he deserved you see people ask all the time why do bad things happen to good people there's only one person in life that applies that is Jesus Christ he was the only good person he had the only right to ask that question but instead he died on the cross for you he did it for you and you know what this means this makes Satan an absolute liar in your life. Every moment that you think and every moment that I think, does God love me? Does Jesus love me? All I have to do is simply to look at the cross. Remember how we define love? Remember how we define affection? Remember how if you could love God without expecting anything from God, then that would be the proof of your love. Well, Jesus does the same. He died for you for nothing. He was already in glory. He was enjoying the relationship and the love relationship in the Trinity. He had angels singing in worship. He had everything. And yet, to love you and to die for you, he gained nothing. And now you know that he loves you just for you, not to get something from you. Let me ask you a question tonight. What are you praying to God tonight? Of something that he could free you from. What is something that is enslaving you? That you want liberty from. You want shackles to fall off. You want freedom. What is one thing that you're praying to God? Lord, will you please, during this revival, during the next five days, will you free me? And I want to give you an opportunity to pray and for God to speak into your life. And I want to give you the first step tonight. You might miraculously find that liberty And if you do, praise God. But the very first step that you and I could do is look around the room. There are all these windows everywhere, these glass windows. And I'm going to ask you, as I close in prayer, that because the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, if you could sum up just in one word the very thing that you want to be liberated from, that you no longer wanna be enslaved, that you want God to take and say, God, this is yours. In return, give me more of yourself. Whatever that is, I wanna challenge you to take the step of faith and come. And there are markers, there are paints, and there are all these writing mediums. Come and write this one word on these windows. They're in the back, they're on the sides, they're in the front here. Most people from the surface think that my favorite child is my daughter It's she's my only daughter. Some people think my favorite child is my son, my eldest son, because he's really, really smart. Um, Can't kick a ball to save his life, but he's a math (laughs) And among Asians, that's honorable. (laughs) But could I tell you a secret that will go on the website forever? (laughs) They're not my favorite. My favorite is Brennan. He's my middle son. He's six years old. He's about this big. I passed him my genes. And, And he doesn't register on the growth and weight scale. He doesn't. He's a zero percent. He's also on the autism spectrum. But he has a heart that I love. And when he turned six, I wanted to give him a big treat. And I said, Brennan, Daddy's gonna treat you big. This is a lotto day for you. You want the lotto, son. We're gonna go to Toys R Us, and you could pick any toy in this whole place whatever is whatever is, is, is what you want whatever your heart longs for whatever it is in this whatever aisle it is yours as long as it's under 30 bucks <laughs> it's yours pick whatever whatever so he walks down the aisle and picks something and says daddy about this and it's like a trinket it's like four dollars I'm like no pick something else he picks this I'm like no no don't pick that he brings a Pokemon card I'm like no bigger bigger thirty dollars bigger like big I mean big gigantic and after about an hour he holds my hand and he looks at me and says daddy you pick because you make good choices $30 went up, $300. (laughs) I'm like, I will pick for you. Come right here. I'm like, Nintendo, Xbox, Sony, PlayStation, all of it. Come on, let's go. And this is your daddy. If you look towards your heavenly father tonight and say, Daddy, you choose for me because you make good choices. You always make the best choices. So I'm going to let these things go out of my hand. I'm just going to free myself from my bondage. I'm going to free myself from my wants. You choose for me what you want to give me because you make good choices. Will you stand? When you ask God to free you, you're asking God to choose for you. And when you ask God to choose for you, he will not give you a $30 gift. He will give you more than you could ever promise. He'll give you treasure that is worth more than this entire world you know what he'll give you more of he'll give you more of jesus and that is something that you could keep eternally and secure and it will never disappoint and so whatever it is tonight how i pray for this loving church my beloved family of 1122 that you could set your heart free and say god give you this give me more of you in return that I may not fear that I may no longer be enslaved but be set free so father I pray your sp- sweet sweet spirit will come drawn near to us tonight and that you will give us a supernatural assurance and security knowing that whatever we release to you, Father, you will not rip us off. You will not take it and run it. And in return, you will give us far more greater than we could ever dream of. You will give us more of yourself. Oh God, how I pray that we will be spoken into and whatever that might be, an addiction, wealth, a certain level of assurance, a relationship that you're calling us to let go, whatever it is. Oh, we're so scared. And yet we know we're enslaved. Free us to yourself. That we might get more of you so that we might be satisfied. That there will be a revival that will come about as we let go. And that you come in and that you bring your intimacy back into us and into our souls, I pray in Jesus' name.